We are live on Facebook. So you say, and there's the thumb of authority. So that means we are off and running here a little bit. So it's May the 19th. Lecture discussion number 65 on the book of Joel. Uh, those of you on the internet, there will be no class, no lecture, May the 26th, and we're going to return on June the 2nd to somewhat, we shall return June the 2nd uh, to plagiarize uh, General Douglas MacArthur. Okay, today is going to be devoted to following up on a dozen or so lectures, uh, with a few newer subjects thrown in to maintain the goal of inducing deep restfulness and repose in the audience, uh, the congregation. As you might be aware, and you always should be, because the primary objective, we got together as an elder group and said, what can we do different? And I said, well, I'm confident that uh, I can provide a functional cure for insomnia every Sunday. <laughs> they thought that was something of great value, and it's something, uh, again, that I achieve with regularity, for which I am quite proud. The key to recognizing, I'm sorry, the key to uh, having procuring success in life is to first recognize your own predisposed talents. What I mean by that is that uh, which manifests almost naturally, and mine, of course, is the ability to affect somnolence in the large majority of those who come to listen to my lecturings. And I thought, boy, if only I had known that as a young man, then the obvious career path would have been uh, anesthesiology, right? Yeah, that would have been a really cool idea. In the logical field of study, this theological religious professional is uh, is a close runner-up, but not nearly. Well, I take that back. I'm going to say not lucrative, but recently a pastor left town with millions of dollars here in this city, as we all know. So apparently, I'm just not equipped. To, I'm not a good business person, because yeah. I have certainly not done that. Either that or I'm so good at it that it, no one can catch me. It's, it's, it's the other aspect. Anyway, I bring all this up because the first subject today is, uh, I'm going to make sure I undo this correctly because I grabbed the wrong end and it goes all over me. What we're going to do today is heterochronic, at least we're going to start with this, parabiosis. Logical places, sir. Yeah. Well, you know, all the other churches are doing this, and so <laughs> I said, hey, I gotta keep up. I should point out really fast that chronic heterochronic is not named for me. It is a, it is something completely different. Just in case you were confused, this would be a good time to go unfurl, unfurl your blankets and recline in your chair and set the alarm on your phone. See I do this thinking that that's how you set your alarm on the notes. That's how you do it. But anyway, make sure you don't miss the buffet. It's cake day. As you know, I have presented Sodom for all of my so-called career as distinct. Uh, it is a distinct post-Diluvian evil. In other words, Sodom attained a unique level of wickedness post-flood that has yet to be duplicated in my view. So that they have a they attain something, even though I know Ezekiel talks about Israel, but Sodom was still nonetheless different than Israel. I'll make that case as the as the weeks come. So, Genesis 6, incredible, unimaginable evil to the point that God brought the Noahic flood. He uses the same phrases to describe Sodom in Genesis 13 and Genesis 19. So he connects Genesis 6 with Sodom. So those two events, they're different evils, but they reach, they reach the threshold, if you will, a magnitude that has been unattained so far. Notice how I say that. Noah and Lot, the days of Noah and the days of Lot, that's what Christ calls them, are linked by Jesus, the Lord God Almighty himself at Luke 17, 26 and 30, and through 30. He says they are a sign, and we are to look for 
that which occurred in the days of Noah and that which occurred in the days of Lot as we get to the end of the age of the Gentiles. So the days of Noah, the days of Lot will regurgitate, if you will. They'll be repeated. And we should know what they are and watch for them. The rise of depravity of those days, I think, is upon us. I think we can see it. Mankind is going to unlock the fiendish ways of Genesis 6 and of Sodom. Now, why are they going to do that? What's the motive? What's the plan? What's mankind thinking? Why would they replicate what happened at Genesis 6 and Genesis 13 and 19? What's the purpose? Well, I propose, as you know, that it is rejuvenation. It's the extending of life, physical life, defeating physical death, and all of the associated evil that arises from that. Remember, the Bible says the curse of death is for what? For your sake. Mankind does not want to adhere to that. They don't see the value of physical death. Why not? Because mankind believes physical death is an extinguishment. Go to any class in any school, and that's what they will tell you. And you're saying that Christian schools don't do a good job on this? Yes, that's what I was saying. God has made it clear, Leviticus 17, that life is in the blood. Now that's a theological statement as well as a physical statement. Does that make sense? The life is in the blood. And life is in, or the blood and life are connected in physical. So the life, Christ, and his blood is the life. The life blood. So that is a picture of Christ as well as evidence of our physical condition. And man has attempted to unlock the meaning of Leviticus uh, 17.11 for thousands of years. The practice of drinking the blood of the young is an ancient practice. It has been going on for centuries and centuries. Man has always done it and has still not ceased doing it. You see, the singular issue of death through aging is the declining of the regenerative system. In other words, we are endowed with an with an installed, if you wish to call it that, cell revival, a system that is restorative. We all had it as children. Some, of course, there's diseases where there is no restorative cell system, but um, all of us generally have it. But as we age, this operation fails in degrees. And I am a prima facie Example of accelerating failure in the regeneration process. Take a look at me. This is the future, if you're young. This is what you look like. Yay. Arthur C. Custance labeled this the mortogenic factor, the inevitability of death over time. So, again, I've said this many times. There is a relationship between death and time, or death over time. Anyway, mankind has given great effort to circumventing Genesis 3.19. What's Genesis 3.19? That is where dust you shall return. It's the curse of Adam. And mankind has just done everything they can to eliminate Genesis 3.19 and so far to no avail. And I submit that Genesis 6 and Genesis 13.13, however, are the two exceptions. Those are the places where God declares Sodom unbelievably, unimaginably wicked to the point that he has to intervene. The same thing is true of Genesis 6. So I'm telling you that I I believe I'm going to make the case that Genesis 6 and Genesis 13.13, Genesis 19 are two exceptions to the defeating of the, the no availing or the failure to defeat Genesis 3.19. I'm suggesting that there was limited success at Sodom and in the pre-flood world. 
attenuation of the time component. I said a few years ago that the good health is merely the slowest possible rate at which you can die, right? So all of these people that are trying to, you cannot, I don't care what goofy healing service you go to, they're not going to stop you from physically dying. But that hasn't in any way affected the efforts of mankind. To rephrase, it's my opinion that man has been able to significantly slow the rate of the rejuvenation decline in the past. He's been able to pull it off. Do we stop the, the lecture until you get seated? Is that what we do? Are we stopping until you finally get up here? Okay, I'll wait. Well, by bringing the baby that is named after me, you have doubled the attendance today. So we're, for that, we're, we're grateful. Can you have more kids? We need a higher. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you for. <laughs> well, <coughs> we do what we can. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> to repeat what I've, I've many times stated. Man in Sodom described by God, Genesis 13, 13, exceedingly wicked. And I believe this is because of their ability to affect the, the decline rate and to affect the rejuvenation decline of the cell structures of the physical body. And again, they're described as exceedingly wicked by God. And it's so much so that he destroyed them with fire and erases their footprint, eliminates all traces of them and their technological advances. Obviously, great wickedness accompanies the attempt to weaken Genesis 3.19 because that's what happened in Genesis 6 and that is what's happened in Genesis 19 and 13. So, what wickedness is exceedingly wicked as defined by God? What rises to this threshold? World War II saw the experiments of Joseph Mengele. Did God blow up Joseph Mengele? No, he died on the beach in Brazil. So, whatever Mengele was doing didn't reach it. Have you ever read of what he did? It's incredibly wicked. Diabolically wicked. He didn't reach the threshold. So my question becomes, the point is, yea, a point. Who has replaced Mengele? I think we're now seeing the extreme wealthy. They're pouring hundreds of millions, if not billions, into the rejuvenation sciences. Which leads to a basic question. Why is why is it almost impossible for the rich to be saved because the Bible says so? How many of you are rich? Lucky you. Because it's almost impossible for a rich person to be saved. Why is that so? Matthew 19.24, Jesus Christ himself said, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He ends it with, But with God all things are possible. So rich people can be saved, but they don't wish to be by percentages, by statistics. This is a statistical analysis here. Jesus condemns the evil Pharisees, Matthew 23:24. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Obviously, he remembers that he spoke of camels to the Pharisees when he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than to be saved because so, he's the rememberer. So what's the relationship of the camel and the needle and the camel and the gnat? How do they fit together? Because they do. For today, though, set that aside just because that's for fun. Those who have accumulated riches are rarely saved. Why? I'm very, very concerned. Some would say I'm envious, but I'm really not. I have never had any envy of rich pastors. 
I've never had very much envy of anybody, frankly, especially as I get older. But why did the rich young Pharisee, and don't forget that, don't think he's not a Pharisee because he is, Matthew Matthew 7.22. Why did the rich young Pharisee abandon Christ to keep his great possessions? Because that's what it said. He had accumulated great possessions. How big is great? Well, it's a comparative, it's a relative number. Who, who else could be described as having great possessions? I have some possessions. 1-800-GOT-JUNK is what mine are, pretty much. We have a dumpster in front of our house. That's not by happenstance. The neighbors are starting to get annoyed. We've had it there for what, 15 years? No, that's... That's a little much, maybe a couple of years. We're still waiting to tear out the carpet and the bathroom upstairs. <sighs> anyway, heterochronic parabiosis, not to be confused with isochronic parabiosis. That, huh? Yeah, yeah. Just in case some of you were. Uh, we're considering isochronic parabiosis or transplantation, which is not either of those. Heterochronic parabiosis is the sharing of the blood platelets, the rich plasma, the platelet-rich plasma of two distinct animals. So they have two animals, essentially, mostly rats or mice. And they, one of them, heterochronic, is old to new or old to young. Isochronic would be young to young or old to old. Everyone's still fascinated with this. Wow. Some of you really do deceive me well. I'm How old is old is a great question. About to die in this experiment. And what they do is they bond them together. They surgically join the blood circulation systems so the blood circulation is shared between both of these animals. One is at advanced age, the other is young, and that is heterochronic parabiosis. Again, it's not transplantation, transplantation of tissues or organs. It's a surgical linking of the blood circulation. And, the, and, the, and it's done rapidly. Once this is accomplished surgically, the blood is, is uh, uh, exchanged in a very rapid and continuous manner. Now, why does anybody do this kind of experimentation? Is it going on today? Absolutely, it's going on today. The number one university that does uh, heterochronic parabiosis is Stanford. What are they trying to do? Well, I suspect you've already guessed the reasoning. If you, if you were to guess cellular rejuvenation, then you get a trophy. Award yourself a trophy. That's how we do it now in this, uh, in this country of ours. As you might have expected, the experimentation of this, in the past, they had what's called, um, uh, I can't remember the name, but there was a, uh, a parabiotic failure. So the animals would die, and they thought it was related to some kind of rejection, much like you'd have a transplanted organ rejection. But now they've yielded measurable improvement in the musculature of the older animal with this system. In other words, again, the aged rats are improving in their muscularity. Old rats surgically altered and placed into heterochronic parabiosis with a young rat. The settings in the young rats had activated the progenitor cells, which result in muscle regeneration. What do I mean by progenitor cells? Progenitor cells are those cells that we have that produce cells that are healthy typically, but as we get older, they do not replicate well. We have, if you wish, copying errors. When you put a young rat and an uh, old rat together in heterochronic parabiosis, what's happening is, is that the, the, progenitive, the progenitive cells of the young rat in that blood circulation system activate the cells of the old rat. Now, they don't, in other words, the old rat isn't taking from the young. What the old rat is, is happening to him, yes, I'm an old rat, in case you were wondering. 
What's happening to the older rat is, is that his, the system, this structure is causing him to activate his progenitive cells. Hopefully that makes some sense. Let's try it in other words. Progenitor cells, progeny cells. Does that work for you? Cells that produce, replicate other cells. Those in the old rats begin to activate. So again, it wasn't the new circulation of the young rat's progenitive system, progenitor cells, that affected the muscle structure of the old rats. It was the activation of the old rat's progenitor uh, cells that occurred in parabiosis. In any event, you can begin to imagine what the future is holding, can't you, as they go down this path. Human beings have continually sought a solution to Genesis 3.19. Old rats have long sought to steal the lifeblood of the young. And it's going to happen again as it has happened in every generation all through time. What is the singular lesson of this? I mean, legend of this. It is the vampiric. The drinking of the blood. The old vampire drinking the blood of the young victim and therefore rejuvenating his system, right? These kinds of things have been gone on for generations. Fascinating to me to watch this generation Say, get all wrapped up in vampire books and movies as if it is something to be, uh, I don't know, entertained by or wish for. They used to be called horror movies. Now the vampires are the heroines and the heroes. It's fascinating to me to watch all of this occur in my little short lifetime. The days of Noah were genetic mutation. So when I put Noah next to Lot, oops, spell Noah right. Noah was genetic manipulation. Lot was heterochronic parabiosis. It was predation. For the point of getting youth, taking the cell structures of their victims. That's not just my opinion. That is the opinion of men much smarter than me who have spent a lifetime trying to figure out what really happened in Sodom. Because if you think that it is physical activity between, um, what's the words I can use here? If you think it is some kind of physical activity that is intimate, well, that's happening in every city in this country. And they're not getting burned to the ground. No, it's exceeding wickedness. I don't disagree that that element might have been there. I think it probably and likely was. My point being, however, that that isn't enough to get the language to reconcile. Ezekiel 16.49 describes Sodom as full of food. says they're full of food, so they don't need any food. Imagine what they have. This is thousands of years ago. They are full of food. Also says they have an abundance of idleness. That means they got lots of food and nobody's working. They're haughty. They're proud. They're committing abominations before God. Their sin was very grave. The outcry was great. Genesis 18.20, Ezekiel 16.49. First question is, who is crying out to God? Because the outcry is, is great. What was Sodom so very proud of? What had they done? Let's put it this way. What had they done that no one else had done? And again, who's crying out to God? Genesis 4.10. That's where we find the beginning of the crying out to God. Who cried out to God? Whose blood cried out to God? In Genesis 4.10. Whose blood is crying out to God? In Genesis 18.20. There is nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1.9. Solomon, 
Holy Spirit through Solomon nailed that down. Man will try literally anything to live forever in sin. However, God will not allow it. He will thwart the plans of man. At the end of the age, though, we should see genetic manipulation. Check. Just look it up. You have phones in Google. Look what's going on out there. Look at here, CRISPR. If you're not familiar with CRISPR, now's the time to get familiar. You can get CRISPR on your phone. It's amazing what's happening, what people can do in their garages now. Imagine what the Chinese are doing with CRISPR. We have genetic manipulation uh, accelerating, exploding all over the world. Do we have the killing of the young to harvest their blood? Very rich men, desperately. They're desperate, typically because they want to keep their possessions, just like the rich young ruler. You have billions of dollars. They say the worst thing that can happen in life, the most unfair thing, is for an older person to win the lottery. That joke's everywhere. Apparently an 84-year-old man won hundreds of millions of dollars and everybody was frustrated. They want the, the young people at least could have a lifetime of what? Yeah. But old people winning the lottery is really bad. I think the opposite is true. What would I do if I, if I won the lottery? That's right. I would give everyone who physically attended Cliffside one time during the year $10 million. That's what I would do. I've actually used that joke before and increased attendance because they thought, they thought it was possible. <laughs> so I'm trying it again because it's summertime, right? <laughs> and he should see the panic. I gotta go at least once a year just in case he wins. Cause you know I would do it, right? I mean, I really would. I, we would take, what would we take? 50 grand? We'd jump up and down. I certainly do not want tens of millions, hundreds of millions, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't give hundreds of millions to anybody. I'd destroy them with it. Look at what happens to these people that win those lotteries. It isn't working well. It's a curse. Okay, back to the story. At the end of this age, we're going to have genetic manipulation. That's already occurring. We're going to have predation. We're going to have the killing of the young by the old to harvest their blood. And and people love their money. They love their wealth, their power, their position, their possessions. That young rich Pharisee, just as an aside, he said to Christ, I should read this. This is... This is a mistake. Everybody makes mistakes in a couple of places in Scripture. The first place they make a mistake is Matthew 7, 22 and 23, where we have people running around saying they did miracles. Don't make the mistake of thinking they did miracles. We have another mistake in Matthew 19, 18 through 20. It is the same mistake, and it's, it's good for you to know it because of how it fits here in a second. Let me see if I can find it. Now, behold, it says, behold, Matthew 19, 16. It's a behold. So something amazing is going to be revealed here. One came and said to him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And Christ said back to him, why do you call me good? How do you know that I am pure good? That's what he's saying. No one is good but one. And that one is who? God himself. So Christ is declaring himself to be God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, the rich young Pharisee said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall honor your father and your mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man says to him, says to the face of God, All these things I have kept from my youth. What's that? That is lying to the face of God. That is a lie. 
How do I know it's a God? It's a it's a lie. How do I know? It's obvious it's a lie. The other place people lie. Matthew seven twenty two. They actually fit together. I've read books recently where somebody thinks seven twenty two is exactly as it says. It's a complete lie. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who are lying to my face. I added that last part. It's important to know that you lie to God, he sends you away. That happens to be the subject today. But this it says here. But when the young man heard that he heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Because Christ said to him, "Go sell what you have and give to the poor. Get rid of your possessions." And the man was very sorrowful because he had lots of possessions. He wasn't about to give them up. What do you think he worked on next? Can't be saved this way. It can't be saved by giving it all away. It's not going to do that. So what are we going to do instead? What's plan B? Loving money is dangerous. It begets evil camels and needles. Nothing is impossible for God. Would a rich man give away his wealth to save his soul? That seems like a very easy choice, doesn't it? But how many do it? How many would instead opt for plan B? Heterochronic parabiosis, for example. Or some other ghoulish method. It is interesting to me that the eugenics industry in our country constantly proclaims that it is the right of women to kill the very young in order for the women to maintain, to retain their current lifestyle and possessions. Because we can't allow a child to interfere with my lifestyle. I have to keep my job or I have to keep my stuff and that child is going to interfere. There's the logic, right? It's proclaimed every day. The older can kill the younger. Do I have heterochronic parabiosis? The woman and her child? Now you know where it comes from. I see the logic. It's very familiar. The eugenics movement is using the logic of those who would would be predatory towards the weak. The stepping stones are clear as you can be. Okay, moving along. By moving along, I mean going backwards. Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4. Began to take this on last week because it does fit here and it is a very, very important subject. This is the testing of God for purity. The testing. Of God. That's what's happening here. If you have any other view, then what's that word? You're wrong. Now, the other views predominate, so you may have it, in which case I have said something to you that is offensive. I am not sorry at all for that, in case you thought I might be. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to be as offensive as I can be down the stretch here. Sin... There is no temptation of God because temptation is tied to sin, as I explained last week. If I am tempted to steal your Diet Coke, that's stealing. I may not actually manifest the act, but I have thought of the act and the thinking of the act is a spiritual property. The actual taking is a physical property and God is clear that the... The spiritual property is is in fact exactly the same. It is a, a sinful act. Or a sinful uh, event. So this is not tempting Christ to see 
if they can get him to sin. In the sense, get him to even think of it. Jeremiah 32, 35. There is no sin in the mind of God. So Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4 is God proving that there is no sin in the mind of God. That God is absolutely good, perfect good. You call me good. How do you know that I'm perfect good? Only God is perfect good. That's what Christ is saying there to that rich young ruler. God is proving that he is pure, perfect good. He is omnibenevolent and he has no sin. There is sinlessness in Christ. And of course, Matthew 4 and all the others is a direct response to Genesis 3. So these things will send you to Genesis 3. All of them will. I shouldn't say greater. I should make an arrow, huh? There, arrow. So you will go right to Genesis 3 when you study this. Satan's premise contains as a key element, if not the key element, that God lies and therefore God is the source of evil. That's Genesis 3, 4. Now, it's very common to read commentators on Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4 that offer a differing view. People disagree with me. That's stunning. I know. I say it all the time. It saddens me. I have not won over the rest of humanity to my line of thinking. I'm working on it. One every 15, 20 years so far is my record. But these other commentators will propose that Jesus Christ, who is the almighty God himself in the flesh, Isaiah 9, 6, was in fact tempted. And he was not being tested for sin. That Christ was there bandy-legged and about to go and do something evil. Boy, it was close, right down the stretch. I mean, it could have gone either way. That is what you will read. And there are many reasons for this position that they expound, but mostly they can be consolidated into one main theme, and that being that Jesus went through temptation, and he did it. In other words, the possibility that he will sin. It is called the peccable view versus the impeccable view. The peccable view says that Christ was right on the edge of sinning. He could have gone either way, but... Fortunately for us, he didn't fall. He was really close, but he hung in there. Let's do the yay Christ cheer. Yay. And he did that. He allowed himself to think of sin in order to experience the possibility of sin, to share, and sin itself, to share with humanity the trial of temptation. That is why they will have him being fearful. They'll have him being uh, worried about himself, self-focused. They'll have him have all of these characteristics that he didn't have, but they'll tell you that he did have them because it's valuable to tell you that. And you're going to come across the complement to this um, that he had to share humanity in the trial of, of, of temptation. You'll come across the associative, if you will, the the uh, the twin. That's also it's also very prevalent, and that's the one that says that Christ added humanity for the purposes of learning and knowing what it's like to be human, because he didn't know what it's like. So he had to add humanity. Now he knows, oh, wow, I've learned something new. Good grief. But this is winning. This passes for theological commentary today. It's everywhere. I have it in this Bible here in the commentary section down below. And I scream at it and write things all over it. You idiot. is a number I do. I get very frustrated. That's sinful. In other words, they say to us that he, he needed to become human so that he could be sympathetic to fallen mankind and experience pain and suffering. Because he didn't know what pain and suffering was, and so he made himself experience it. And so now he is just like who? Just like you. And he has to be just like us in order to save us, because if he's not like us, it's impossible for him to save us. He doesn't commiserate. 
That is the popular view. It's in 99% of churches. If you're not familiar with it, are you going to take care of that for me, Big Bill? Yeah, just pull the door closed, Bill. That'll help. Obviously, both of those explanations that I just um, exposed are what's the word for them? Um, Damnable heresy. There you go. That's what they are. But but they're very, very popular. There's gold in the dim thou hills. The reason that they do this is the big money is an anthropomorphic heresy. There's big money in it. If I can make you think Christ is just like you, you will like him better. And if I can get you to like him better, you will come to the church of like yourself better. It's all this gobbledygook psychobabble, and it works. Those buildings are huge. And everybody wants one. Because they want possessions. They want to leave town with a lot of money. Anyway. Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4 are the New Testament fulfillment, as is Romans 5.14 of Genesis 3. I should put Romans 5.14 right here. So whenever you're in this, this area, you're really still in Genesis 3. Everything goes back to Genesis 3. I have the first Adam and I have the last Adam or the second Adam. A- Adam the man and, and Christ the God-man. Both are challenged by Satan. The first Adam was not deceived. As you know, I can't say it enough. First Timothy 2.14. The second, the last Adam is omniscient God in the flesh. And omniscient God in the flesh cannot be deceived. And Satan is trying to deceive both. Now, why would you try to deceive God? Obviously, what's the answer? You don't know it's God. But that's the perspective that Adam was not deceived and Christ cannot be deceived. That is a duh, amen. And that's the perspective. Perspective, the frame of reference that you must have to evaluate Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4 correctly. Quickly. When I say quickly, I mean it's going to last a long time. The kenosis position. Are you familiar with kenosis? Because that's what's going on in Matthew 4 in most theological circles. The kenosis position, that interprets Philippians 2 7. Seven and eight. Let's get that on the board for the people who... Let me turn it a little bit, huh? In case you can't see that. High internet. But uh, that's the view, kenosis, that interprets Philippians 2, 7 and 8 as evidence that Christ dispossessed himself of his godliness. Before he came to humanity, he said, well, the first thing I have to do is I have to divest... Um, of my godhood. And that, of course, cannot be true. And let me put it in a more succinct manner. It's impossible for it to be true. Impossible. Go through it quickly. Infinity is uncreated. Infinity must always be infinity. There's no origin of infinity. Time, however, has a beginning. Time is reliant on absolute consciousness. In other words, in order for time to begin, there has to be an absolute consciousness that installs it and creates time. Time is reliant on absolute consciousness. Therefore, Christ did not and would not divest himself of his infinity. Because infinity contains time. Time consists in Christ. Colossians 1, 15 and 17. That's where time is inside of him. There isn't, therefore, enough time to remove an infinity. So I can't remove Godhood in time. He can't set his Godhood someplace. The premise is nonsensical. Also, it's accompaniment, if you will, that Jesus needed to learn pain and suffering and temptation, what it's like to die. He didn't know what it was like to die, so he had to die in order to experiment death so that he could like he could feel sympathy for us who's going to die. The experience 
is the key of all of that. He needed to experience the attributes of humanity in order to learn what it was like. Uh, you, that's everywhere. That's, they, they, they don't understand that Hebrews 5 through 7 is talking about the priesthood of, of Israel. They have screwed that up so badly they'll never find their way through it. You'll also hear and read the death by crucifixion. Let me read this one. See if I can find it here. I'll read it for you word for word, this guy. Oh, where is it? I don't know that I'm going to find it. I'm looking for a place where I, I, I just went and wrote all kinds of bad things. Oh, my goodness. I don't know where it is. Let me just encapsulate or um, crystallize it a little bit. No, no, it's in either John, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and I just don't have time to hunt it down. You're going to hear that death by crucifixion was the most degrading form of death ever. Have you read that? Have you heard that? They will say to you, he took this crucifixion on himself because it's the worst possible death of all the deaths. The most suffering, the most agony uh, ever devised by man, and that is more complete nonsense. Study executions just a little bit, and you now have a phone. That worked really good in the 1800s. It shouldn't work today. Christ is in complete authority over his death. Crucifixion was a lifting up of him. He wanted to be lifted up. That's a primary, one of the focuses of crucifixion. Just as the brazen serpent was lifted up by Moses, Christ was lifted up. He wanted to be set on the actual skull of Goliath, the place where the, that's why it's called Gaul Goliatha. We messed that up and call it Golgotha. But the, it's the place where Goliath's skull was buried by David. And he wanted him, he made sure that he was crucified on that exact spot. And there's the real question. It's why does Christ intend for crucifixion and not stoning or burning alive or beheading? What did, what did it do? Why did he pick this? Go ahead. Give me a shot. Mm-hmm. He has the crimson worm of Psalm 22 and of, uh, of Jonah. He wants to attach himself to humanity. And he fulfills all those prophecies. So there's a few thoughts. There's a bunch of prophecies about crucifixion. That this is how he would do it. But the question is, is why did he do it this way and not stoning or burning alive or beheading? As I said, pick one. You could be trampled by animals. You'd be eaten by animals. You'd be buried in the dirt and eaten by insects. Which one would you prefer? Crucifixion or eaten by insects over 15 days? What is the most degrading, humiliating, excruciating way to die? You, you think it's crucifixion? You have not investigated the treachery of man. So that's just not true. So why did they say it? Let's, here's a few thoughts. He saved who when he was crucified? The onlooking Jews. They, they recognized, whoa, this is not who we thought. They beat their chests. They were so emotionally affected by the crucifixion of Christ. They were so remorseful. He saved the Jews, Luke 23, 48. He saved the Roman centurion, Luke 23, 47. He saved the thief, Luke 23, 42, 43. Have you begun to see the pattern? He spoke to the woman. So the second Adam speaks to the woman at the cross as the first Adam spoke to the woman. Both Adams, woman, woman. Saving Romans, saving Jews, Jesus Christ always saves. The reason of the crucifixion are mainly twofold. He, he revealed his true identity. Centurion got it. And he saved everyone who cried out to him. Okay, where was I? Hopefully I've done enough to establish that Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4 are not a temptation. If you don't have that figured out, then it's, you're in such a mess, 
is going to be hopeless. God was not tempted by Satan. It makes no sense. So don't go there. Stop with the temptation of Christ. I know it was a lousy movie, but stop with it. All the movies are lousy. Take my word for it. God, as with the crucifixion, God is revealing himself. With the testing, what do you think God is doing? He's revealing himself again. Satan has no impact on him. You have to get a grip on that. It isn't like, I make the, uh, the analogy that it isn't like Christ is on the free throw line and he's got to hit this free throw and there's no salvation for anybody. So he's in a free throw contest with Satan. And that's what's going on there. And he's rimming out a couple of them. And Satan's coming on strong. And maybe this could go either way. No. God is not tempted by Satan. And as with the crucifixion, Jesus is revealing himself to be God. He puts his full godliness in view on the crucifixion. And he did the exact same thing here at the testing uh, of Christ. Satan doesn't know he's testing Christ. Does that make sense? He doesn't know that Christ is revealing himself to be absolute pure God. Pure good. Remember, what does Satan say about God? Does Satan say that he's pure good? Christ is revealing that he is. Hopefully I can get some of this done. How am I doing? Pretty close. He displays that he is God when he casts Satan away, Matthew 4.10. He says, away with me, Satan. And there's a whole bunch of obvious questions. Where did Jesus send Satan? He got rid of him. How easy is it to get rid of Satan? If you run across Satan, you say, okay, go away, Satan. You, you think that's going to work for you? But it, how far away did he send Satan? Where did he send them? How long did it take for Satan to get back from where he was? What do you think Satan was thinking when he's flying through the universe? Where did he go? Remember that Christ is the Ancient of Days. That's the judge of everything. That's what he looks like on the throne, Daniel 7, Daniel 10, Revelation 1 through 3. He, the Ancient of Days, is the one who judged and condemned Satan. But he doesn't look like the Ancient of Days here, does he? He doesn't. He's disguised, if you will. He's hidden. You have to figure out who he is. But he's the one that judged uh, and condemned Satan. He's the one who said to Satan, Genesis 3, 14 and 15. That's the sentence of Satan. Christ is the one that said that to Satan. Told him he's condemned and that he would eat dust. And it would seem to me that Satan was sent, uh, the only logical place that he would send Satan is where? It, to me, it's, it's obvious that he, uh, I think that he sent him to the lake of fire, Matthew twenty-five forty-one. Because he says, depart from me, you cursed, into the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And Christ says this when he's judging, when he's the ancient of days, when he's judging the goats. It's the trial of the goats. And he looks just like the ancient of days when he's doing that. Because read about what he looks like in Revelation 19. And so he comes to earth and now he is the judge and he is revealed as the ancient of days. But at Matthew 4, no. He is in his humiliation, if you will. His humiliation is not being revealed as he actually is. He's covered like the Ark of the Covenant was covered with the skins. So he says to the, uh, the goats at their trial, depart from me, you curse. He says to Satan, away with me, depart, depart. <laughs> yeah, hopefully uh, that'll be edited out. 
(laughs) He says to Satan, away from me. And Satan is cursed. He says something very much to the same of very much the same to those liars in Matthew 7, 22 and 23. Those who say they did miracles and wonders, they did they did nothing. And they do what Satan does. They lie right to the face of God. You're going to walk up to Christ and said, hey, I did all this stuff. Do you think he knows you didn't do it? What is wrong with these people? Why does anybody believe them? Stop believing the obvious liars, if you can. They're not even clever. These people in Matthew 7, 22 and 23, they did nothing except lie to the face of God. As do the goats in Matthew 25, 44. As, do, as did the young, rich Pharisee. As do so many. Satan. Obviously, Satan was not imprisoned in the lake of fire. At this particular time, let me say it in a different way. At this inopportune time. Does that ring a bell? Go look at Route 4. But I'm suggesting that he was sent there. And merely sending him would fit with Genesis 3:14 and 15. Because that is where Christ said he would send them. They're condemned. And it would also identify Christ as somebody. Who would it identify him as? That's right. It would identify him as the judge of Genesis 3, 14 and 15, the Ancient of Days. The one who removed Satan from the mineral Eden. Satan has come across Christ before. Now, last Sunday, while evaluating the three tests of Satan, we noted the connection between throw yourself down and fall down and worship me. And I brought up that that has a gra- gravitational phenomenon issue. And Satan says to Christ at this point, I submit, uh, he says this to Christ, throw yourself down and fall down and worship me. And I'm, I'm saying to you that I don't think Satan knows who Christ is at this point. Throw yourself down and fall down. I just want you to notice the downs. Throw yourself down and fall down and worship me. So I asked last week, can Jesus Christ fall down? Better question, how does the infinite God of creation, the creator of gravitational phenomenon of gravity, how does he throw himself down off of a high place? And if he did throw himself down, I asked, can the angels lift him up? Can they catch him? How much does infinity weigh? Remember all of that? If the angels do not catch him, what would happen? Satan is asking Christ to attempt to throw himself down. For what purpose? Again, this is revisiting last week. Obviously, he is saying, kill yourself. What did he say to Eve? Kill yourself. What did he say to Adam? It's not recorded. But ultimately, Adam kills himself, in a sense. Is Satan asking Christ to attempt to kill himself? Because he says, if you try to kill yourself, what will happen? What will happen? You've read the verses. You don't have time to do it. He says that God will interfere. Think about that. If you try to kill yourself, God will interfere. What has he done? What has Satan done there? He's begun to separate Christ from God, hasn't he? Like every other church in in Alaska. And so he's accusing God of interfering. If Christ attempts to throw himself down, he says God's not going to allow it. He's going to send the angels, they're going to catch you, and they're going to bring you back up. You can't kill yourself, is what he's saying to Christ. Did God allow the death of Adam? Yeah, didn't stop it. Satan is saying, he will stop you. Second Adam. You start to see the positioning, I hope. In this test, Satan reveals that he is uncertain. I think he's unaware of the true nature of Christ. He does not know who Jesus really is. He's been following him for 30 years, hasn't he? 
Satan argues that God will give his angels authority over Jesus. Think about that. That the angels will come and they will stop Christ from being killed. Now that happens again. As you know, Christ says to Peter, do you think I, I, I can't call angels to interfere in my death? What's he, what's he doing? He's, if you compare it to what Satan said, Satan said God will send angels. Those angels will have authority over Jesus' what? Decision to throw himself down. They won't let him do it. What's the implications? What's the consequences? He's saying to Jesus that Jesus can't, you won't even be able to dash your foot against the stone. Oh my goodness. I have fall down. I have throw down. Throw yourself down. And now what do I have? You're not even going to be able to dash your foot against a stone. Why didn't he say you won't be able to dash your foot against a tree? But he said stone. How smart is this Satan? Essentially, again, he's separating Christ from God. God will stop you from even stubbing your toe. There's that stone again. Looky there. I hope you can see that the elements move through the test. Do you now? The stone bread, if you will, moves to dash the foot against the stone. So he repeats the stone. First he has changed that stone into bread. Then he says, you won't hit your foot against this stone. I want to know if it's the same stone. Throw yourself down moves to, if you want to say it moves to, you will fall down and worship me. So throw yourself down and fall down and worship me. So you see the downs, the falling, the downs move and the stone moves. And that is the exact same proposal made to the woman at Genesis 3-4, isn't it? He's saying that the He's implying directly, not implying, he's saying directly that the second and last Adam does not possess the free will to reject God. If he tries to do something that is not part of God's plan, God will intervene and he won't be able to do it. That's the same thing he said to the woman in Genesis 3-4, and likely he said the same thing to the first Adam. Again, I think it's typologically implied, but there's no evidence for my position other than I think... The logical anatomy of it. Satan is therefore superior. Do you see that? I hope. Because he, Satan, has done something that Christ is not able to do. So who's in charge? Satan has rejected God, rejected God, and Satan is saying to Christ, you can't do it. If you try it, angels are going to stop you that God sends. Again, that separation of God and Satan. And Satan is demanding that Christ prove that he has free will, isn't he? Just as he did with the woman. And that free will is only displayed by rebellion against God. There's that argument again, right? In effect, perfect obedience is robotic. It's not really life. It's not really existence. You're an automaton unless you rebel. And of course, we've destroyed that logic. I hope you know how to do that. We did it in the past. Many times. Consider, if you will, for a second, if, okay, a minute. If Christ throws himself down, then he's in rebellion to God, and that's a sin. And if he sins, then what's his condition? Is he, low, is he the king anymore? No, he's not the king. So who's, he, who's in authority over him? So if he throws himself down and he sins, then he has to worship who? Satan. If Christ refuses, then Christ is unwilling to prove that he has free will. Placing it in doubt. Why are you unwilling to prove that you have free will? Because you don't think you have free will, or you know you don't. You know you're a robot. God then has sent an automaton that has no true will. And that, what's that make God? A liar. And everything's a fraud. And who's watching this? 
The angels. So there's your trap, right? What does Christ do? He does something that Satan could never have anticipated. It is unbelievable. It's one of the most amazing things. Jesus says something that no one could have known. Angels didn't know. Satan didn't know. Mankind didn't know. No one knew that he would say this. He says to Satan, it is written again that you shall not test the Lord your God. That's why it's so important, you know, that he said test and not tempt. Because Israel attempted to test God in the wilderness and he's drawing into that as well. It is written again that you shall not test the Lord your God. So who is Satan testing? He is testing his God. He didn't know that. Jesus reveals himself as the Lord God Almighty. Essentially, he says, do not test me. I'm God. And Satan didn't get it, I don't think. But he, does, he doesn't get it the first time, but he gets it the second time. Not the first time, but the second time, Matthew 4.10. Christ says to him, you shall worship the Lord your God, which is him. You shall not test me. I'm God, and you shall worship me. I'm God, and you will serve me only. You're not serving yourself now, Satan, he says to him. Who is he serving? He's serving Christ. How is Satan serving Christ? He's not tempting Christ, Christ God. How's Christ using, if you wish, Satan? Christ is revealing who he is by using Satan. Satan is the pawn in this. He's not the controlling element at all. He's being completely controlled. Doesn't even know it. Don't underestimate him. He figures it out fast. As soon as he's at the lake of fire, he's going, oh my. This is not what I thought would happen. He did not know that Christ would declare himself to be the Lord God Almighty. He did it right there. And the angels did what? Down they come. The angels come down. Satan does not serve himself. He serves Christ. Now, the big question is, how is he serving Christ? Obviously, it has something to do with the crucifixion. It fits beautifully in the fact that Christ is revealing himself. And why then does Luke invert test two and three? Because he does. See, not next week. There is no next week here. You can come. You can't get in. You can hang out in the parking lot. 